If you're working with students and you're working alongside parents or you're working in a setting where you're able to provide parent training, you will want to tune into this episode. I talked today with Nikki McRory. She is an amazing speech language pathologist and board certified behavior analyst in the LA area. And her center has a family centered approach. So we talk all about parent training and we talk about this four pronged approach called behavioral skills training, where we're going to provide information to parents. We're going to model for parents a skill that we're discussing. The parent is going to practice that and we're going to give feedback and coaching about the skill. This is such a powerful framework and we call it behavioral skills training. After treating her first client with autism as part of her graduate program, Nikki knew immediately that she wanted a career that involved working with families and children touched with autism. Five years later, McRory Pediatric Services were born. They use a transdisciplinary approach to treatment, and she helps many, many people in her private practice. This is such a great episode if you're working alongside parents and you want to offer a robust parent training component, or if you're working in a home-based setting or with early intervention and you have access to parents and you want to help them interact and communicate with their children. Such a great episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 31 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. Today, we have with us Nikki McRory. Thanks for joining us. It's so nice to have you on. Thank you, Rose. I'm so excited to be here. I know that we have talked on Instagram, and I feel like I've been following your your center, and you're always sending me nice comments, and I always appreciate that. Sometimes in social media, I'm like, hello, is anybody there? Can anybody hear me? Um, so I definitely appreciate the the little notes. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey into the field? Absolutely. So I started out as a speech-language pathologist. I had the opportunity to work here in the Los Angeles area in the public schools when I started my career. I was able to do that through an emergency credential due to the shortage of speech pathologists. So I was able to kind of work on my master's while doing that, which really let me know that I absolutely wanted to continue my career in the pediatric population. So that's kind of led me to where I am today, which is having a pediatric private practice with two locations that are multidisciplinary and really work on treating that whole child. Well, that's so interesting. I wonder, how long have you been practicing as a speech therapist? Because here in Ohio, I remember at the start of my career, there were some different initiatives to try to get speech therapists to work in the schools, and they were working with people and putting together different programs. And how how long have you been practicing as a speech therapist? You know, it sounds terrible to say that I honestly don't know. I think after <laughs> a certain amount of time, you can stop counting, but like a little, maybe around 25 years, maybe a little bit more. Okay. Okay. So I've been practicing about 20. That's always what I say. I'm always like, I'm a seasoned therapist. I've been doing this for a while. So very interesting. I love that. So when then how did you 
get started in using applied behavior analysis? And can you tell us a little bit about that and how that started for you? Sure. So it's kind of an interesting journey because when I first started my practice, we subscribed more to floor time. And floor time was a good intervention. We liked it. There were some things that were challenging about it with respect to having a lot of good science behind it as far as evidence-based practice and um, really understanding how to collect data with it. And there was a big shift in funding here in California with allocation of funds for early intervention. And they really basically said, we're only going to fund now for evidence-based practice. And so that kind of got me looking into applied behavioral analysis. And I went back to school. Gosh, it's probably been almost 15 years. I'll use your your analogy, almost 15 years now, um, I became a BCBA. And I think having a speech pathology background and having a BCBA are really just perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I've been duly certified, I feel like about 10 years. So it's really interesting to have both certifications. And it's so interesting because a lot of the times, at least on social media, it seems like BCBAs and speech therapists cannot get along. But in real life, I'm like, this makes perfect sense. Like being a BCBA and a speech therapist, you just view language in such a different way and you can really help people so specifically, which I'm excited to talk about um, today and talking about this importance of a family-centered approach. And so in your clinic, do you specialize in working with younger students? Is that something that you do? Yeah, I mean, we work with learners all the way up to 18, but all of our um, specialized programs that we've developed are really for that early intervention age, so that birth to three. Okay. Okay. That's great. And I, you know, so in my school-based position, I work with students in middle school and high school, but with my own private practice, I treat students who are younger. And so I really love that journey of helping to support parents and having that that family-centered approach. So I'm really excited to talk about what that means and how you are developing that model in your own implementation too. Um, So what is a family-centered approach? Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean when you say you offer a family-centered approach if people are listening and they're like, okay, so what does that mean exactly? Absolutely. So to me, a family-centered approach is really developing that partnership with that whole family unit, right? It's really about valuing them as an integral member of the therapy team. And so by giving them knowledge and information and really partnering with them, it really allows them to be able to Um, make informed decisions for their child. So when we think about family-centered, we're thinking about really understanding the family unit and based on that family unit, what's important and valuable to them. So we have to do things like consider their cultural differences, their linguistic differences, where they are socially, emotionally in their life right now with respect to maybe processing their child's recent diagnoses um, and any other socioeconomic barriers that might preclude them or make certain types of interventions um, challenging. So I think the first step is to really provide them with, you know, an arsenal of information, not to overwhelm, but to really empower them to make decisions and then to be a really good listener, to really value those differences and not always coming in with our own agendas. You know, it's it's difficult sometimes, I think, sometimes to, you know, we, we're all about planning, right? We have, we, we lesson plan, we do all these plans, we create goals, 
Um, but if it's not meaningful to the family or if they don't have the means to be able to follow through, then is it really going to be a functional skill we teach their child if we're only practicing it in our speech therapy office, for example? Yeah, that's so vital. The idea of generalization and how to include parents is really, really important. So for students, how how young are students that you're working with? When you say early intervention, I'm just wondering as part of, you know, the process of sometimes parents, you know, not sure if their child has autism or are you seeing students once they've had a formal diagnosis or are you working with students who don't yet have a diagnosis or a little bit of both? Because I feel like parents are in different places. We do a little bit of both. So we have a unique program that's a multidisciplinary program um, for young children that are suspected of having autism or who sometimes come in with a diagnosis. So you're right, it's a very different conversation for both. But what's really great about that framework is it has a heavy emphasis on that parental um, participation, which is embedded in the program. So the parents actually come to the center for four hours a day and work alongside the speech language pathologist the RBT, the BCBA, and they also then have this nice built-in network of support with one another where we can provide parent training classes and parent support groups. So it's really this nice little family, if you will. Wow, that sounds really, really cool. It's been neat for me. I've been working in... We were just talking about all the different things I'm doing in my business. But one of the things I've been doing is doing some business consulting with speech therapists who are also BCBAs and offering ABA for the first time and talking about parent training and how important... I love behavioral skills training, which I know that we're going to talk about. But it's just interesting how every single clinic is doing it a little bit different in how they're offering behavioral skills training and how they're offering parent coaching and things like that. So that's really interesting. I'm excited to hear about that. So let's, I want to have more of a picture of, let's say that you have a student who's diagnosed and they're coming to your center. What might that student's services look like with embedding this family into the process? Again, every unique every every child is a unique um, child, so it's going to be based on need. But typically, I would say the most common services that children would be getting would be speech language therapy services, occupational therapy services, and then um, ABA in the form of verbal behavior. Um, we utilize the VB map, not always, but that often is our framework. Um, and then from time to time, we'll get a kiddo who also might need. Um, maybe physical therapy if they are a toe walker or have issues with balance, coordination, motor planning, and things of that nature. Okay, wonderful. So do you, is the VB map an assessment that you like that you tend to use for your students that are coming in for intake? We do use it. It's one of the tools that we do use. I think that there are, you know, like with any test, right, there's going to be some loopholes or holes. No, no one single test is perfect. And that's why hopefully, you know, we're pull as practitioners, we're pulling a few things off the shelf to get information from for sure. But then I like to use, you know, also um, checklists and things like that, that parents can provide information about because that right away kind of really starts that partnership and that relationship and that collaboration piece that we were speaking about. Yeah, that's so neat. So when you talked about parents coming in, so they're working alongside the speech therapist, is that something that you do for all of the students or what does that look like? I'm very interested in, it sounds very interesting, you know, are they there modeling? Are they there talking to the providers about how their student usually is in the home? Are they implementing some of the instruction or, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, it's essentially all of the above. I think it's really more of that teach the teacher approach. I mean, even in my own work where I'm seeing individual clients like outside of program and I have learners, you know, across the age, 
I always tell parents from that very first session what my expectations are. My expectations are is that this is a partnership. You know, you're going to work, you're going to become an honorary speech pathologist and we're going to work on this together. And I really have the parents, you know, actually roll up their sleeves, be on the floor and really practice the skills. And that's where that um, behavior skills model comes in, that BST model to really teach them how to be able to work with their child so that, you know, you spoke about generalization so that the child can now practice the skills at home in the environment where they need those skills um, and with the people they need to use them with. So right away, we're going to get that generalization and it's going to become very functional for that child and for that family unit. I love that because I think sometimes as professionals, we forget how much we know about play or about interacting. And I think sometimes we feel like we're not sure how to help support parents or that we just assume that parents understand how to play with their children or how to even communicate with their children, especially if you're working with autistic students. You know, I was just at a home visit today and the parents are like, oh my gosh, he's saying so many things, but it's not really functional. And so we talk a lot about joint attention and these are things that you could do and it's okay if this happens. You know, I think the only thing about seeing more and more preschoolers, I always have, but I have had this influx of preschool students is that you can have a really great plan, but you need to be very flexible with what you're planning in your session because, you know, three-year-olds, I mean, I had a toy today and I was like, oh, this is going to be it. This kid is going to love this toy just based on other things I had brought in the past. And they were not interested in the toy, like not at all. So you have to learn how to pivot, right? And to be able to be flexible in your sessions, that's a good skill set. Well, I'm 100%. And, and even, you know, what you were talking about with respect to the clinician kind of making assumptions, I think that that can be a barrier sometimes to actually utilizing that family-centered approach, right? It's that barrier of kind of your own perspective of how intervention should be done, or maybe not having the confidence if you're a younger clinician, how am I going to tell a parent what to do when I'm not even a parent myself, or, you know, being maybe too quick to pass judgment on a parent because they didn't follow through and feeling frustrated with not really sitting back and really looking at that whole, you know, the big picture of the family. So, but I also think you tapped into something interesting, which was the fact that, you know, we have to remember that just as all children learn differently, we as adults learn differently too. So I know I personally have, you know, been talking to a parent and they're nodding and they seemingly are understanding what I'm doing, you know, saying to them. And then when I go and give them that opportunity to practice, it's like, oh no, they actually didn't understand anything that I was showing them or talking to them. So, you know, some people learn better by doing, and that's where that kind of hands practice that that BST model really um, promotes really can be valuable uh, when training and teaching parents. Yes, I love that. And I think BST, behavioral skills training, will, might be a new term for a lot of people. And it's really a great, I know we're going to unpack what the different things are included in BST, but I talk about BST all the time in my training. I do a lot of training for a lot of different people, for speech therapy assistants, for speech therapists, for parents, for people becoming BCBAs. But I always try to use the foundations of this BST framework because this is how we learn. I mean, this is how I learn. I was just talking about, you know, like when I learned how to do a podcast, I took a course about the podcast. I learned all the skills that you need to do for a podcast. I have people giving me feedback on how I'm implementing those skills. You know, it's this is the framework for BST. So for people who are new to hearing this term, can you tell us what the different steps are that are included in behavioral skills training or as we're referring to it as BST? 
Sure. I kind of deviate maybe a little bit from the, the traditional four steps to, to make it work a little bit better for parents. But the first step is really um, is information, right? It's really informing them as to what is the skill that we're going to be working on and why are we working on it? What's our rationale? So oftentimes that's provided verbally, but I also like to incorporate some written, especially if it's something more complex. Like the other day, I was working with a parent and I was teaching him how to do an error correction procedure when using PECS phase 3A, so discrimination training. And I you know, told them why it was important to discriminate, why that was a part of PECS. And then um, I told them I was going to model for him, which is the next step, what the steps of that procedure look like. And then I also provided a written um, description of those steps that we could refer to. So after you provide information as to what are the skills that we're working on, why are we teaching it, then you model the skill and you can talk about the skill while you're modeling it or demonstrating it. And then the third step is to provide that opportunity for rehearsal. So the parent gets that opportunity to role play with you and practice, if you will. And eventually, you know, for us working with caregivers, we want to also give them that opportunity to practice um, in vivo with their child in that natural context of which you want them to apply that skill. And then you, the last step is to provide feedback. So just like with every learner, we want to provide that positive reinforcement, right? We want to point out what they did well, but then we want to provide any, um, you know, productive feedback that can enhance or improve them, their accuracy in providing that skill that you just modeled. And, you know, step two and three, you just kind of keep going back to and rehearsing and repeating and practicing until you get to where you want them to be. You know, obviously we want to aim high. We want the parents to be successful. So, you know, I always like to kind of reach for that 80% or higher as much as I can. I think that's great. And I think behavioral skills training can be so powerful. And I think something that we often don't do is that feedback part. Because I know like as a young clinician, or even if, if I was a clinician, I didn't have my own children, you kind of think to yourself, it's that idea of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I? <laughs> who am I to be telling this person how to interact with their kid? You know, like, I think sometimes we just don't give ourselves enough credit for how much we know about communication and how much we know about development. And over the years, I feel like as a seasoned therapist, I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable talking about different terms. I feel comfortable modeling them. I feel comfortable providing coaching and support for parents and other providers. Because I think if you're feeling kind of shy about giving that feedback portion is that we have to think about our main goal is to help that child become an independent communicator and to have a robust way to communicate with the world. And so if you're not feeling good about giving the feedback, you just have to practice that. Because I think over time, I mean, I remember in graduate school doing aphasia therapy with people that were 70. I remember thinking, who am I to be going in here telling somebody, you know, how to work on memory or all those things that you have to learn in graduate school? But it's hard. So do your clinicians kind of struggle with that? Do you provide support to your fellow speech therapists on on that (laughs) skill? Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, listen, we all face imposter syndrome and especially when we're new in our career. Um, you know, we look young, we don't have children of our own, we feel like, oh my gosh, I just finished graduate school, I don't even know what I'm doing yet. But I think the thing that I, you know, that I found that has worked for people is just reminding them, yes, parents, by all means, are 100% an expert of their child, 100%. But at the end of the day, 
it's pretty likely given the fact that you have a master's degree in communication disorders that you've been studying and practicing now and all those fieldwork experiences you've got, you probably know a little bit more about speech and language than they do. So you're always going to have a little bit more. And you know what, at the end of the day, if you get asked a question and you're not sure the answer, you can always find it and come back to it. So it's just kind of taking that pressure off. And to your point, really empowering clinicians to remember the whole point of providing that feedback to a parent is to help them be the best therapist for their child at home. So it's all tied into helping that um, therapist. And what's interesting is I had a clinical fellow um, a couple of years ago who w- this was an area that she was really struggling with was providing that parent coaching and training and feedback in the moment. And what really worked for her was to do just the BST model with her. So we role played it and she pretended I was the parent. And then after doing that a little bit, it just really boosted her confidence. So I think this a framework of BST can be used in so many different facets. Yeah, absolutely. It can. And I've done trainings about working on social skills using BST, you know, with my older students. I've talked about using BST to work on social skills with younger students. Like I worked one year all preschool. So fun. I loved that. It was before I had my own kids. So I was like, oh, this is really fun. Everybody was three and four. Um, And we did a whole BST framework for a student who was having trouble entering a center time with other peers. So we incorporated video modeling. We showed that was like the modeling piece. We took a video and we showed it to the student and we talked about it. They would practice the skill. And then we would provide that feedback and coaching. So I think that it really, that behavioral skills training framework lends itself all the time. And what I see as a natural thing is that people just are hesitant or they don't know about behavioral skills training. So they oftentimes don't do the feedback part. Um, And you know, the other thing um, that I've seen, Nikki, is that people feel like they need to go over a lot of information with parents. Like it's always something different. We have to talk about something new. And in my own mind, when I provide parent training, I may tell the parent this or I may in my mind say, okay, this month we're talking all about joint attention. So I talk about joint attention. I provide information about joint attention. I'm in the home. So I model that with the child. I note to the parent, see this, this is working on joint attention. This is one way that you can do it. We talk about it. They're, you know, suggested that they work on that when I'm not there throughout the week. And then we come back and we debrief on it. And then they also are, you know, I'm providing therapy usually in people's homes um, with my private practice. So the parents, just like you said, are becoming partners in the therapeutic process without me even saying like, hey, come on in. You know, like they're just there and they want to communicate with the child, which is so perfect because just naturally I can provide that feedback and point out like, hey, this is what we're working on. But do you have any information to provide as far as when you're providing parent training, do you do any standalone parent trainings where it's either individual or group with parents who are accessing services at your center? And if you do, what does that look like? Do you have like a skill of the month you talk about? How do you set that up? Because I get asked from a lot of people who are also running businesses, like, how do I set up parent training? Um, How do I do it? And this is just my take on it, how I do it at my practice. But I'd love to hear about how you're providing that support for parents because there's so many different ways that you can go with parent training. Absolutely. And there's a couple of different ways that we do it. But if you think about our early intervention program, that parent training piece is embedded into our program. So every Friday, the parents actually pull themselves out of the program and they come into our conference room and it's a specific topic. So it might be 
oh, I'm just blanking on a topic right now, but let's say it's all on communication temptations. So we're going to talk all about that and then we will um, do role plays. So we'll have them partner up together. If, if there's multiple people from the same household, we'll have them partner up together. So one can kind of act as the child, how the child would respond and one could be the parent. If not, we'll kind of group them up. And then as a group trainer or facilitator, I'll kind of go around the room and work with families. And then they'll have an action plan that's individualized for their child to target that skill at home. But then as they push into the program, we'll reinforce that throughout that next week. So they'll take the tools that they learned in the group instruction, and now they'll learn different ways how to apply it, um, kind of working hand in hand with the staff. So oftentimes the topic that we're doing our staff training on will coincide with the topic that we're training the parent on. So to your point, kind of that same idea, we're going to all focus on this together and we're going to all practice these strategies together. Oh, I love that. I actually have this whole other business called Supervision Academy. And in that business, we provide remote supervision to people getting their BCBA. And I get asked all the time about how do I get my unrestricted hours? So when you're becoming a BCBA, you need to get all these different types of hours, restricted, unrestricted, with a client, without the client. And this idea of parent training and just training staff in some of these concepts that are more behavior analytic, that all counts as this unrestricted time. So it's a really nice thing um, that people can put together these trainings. And so do you put together, do you do the trainings or do you have your staff members who are maybe um, going towards their BCBA put together the trainings or how do you kind of format that in your center? Or have you been doing this long enough that you have have this awesome library of trainings. Yes, on all three, actually. Yes. So sometimes we'll create new trainings or we'll just refresh some of our old stuff. But yeah, we have a pretty good library and framework that we can work from. But we do have people in our organization who are working towards their hours and we have a built-in mentorship program for those individuals. And they happen to be in that early intervention program. So we also do give them the opportunity to create and run programs as well or or, um, parent training classes as well. Oh, that's great. How wonderful. And I love this idea of being able to get all the parents together because I think that's one of the things, at least I've seen when I've been working with parents, is this sense of community of, you know, because we both kind of have an online presence and we know that, you know, sometimes a parent can go into a Facebook group per se and, you know, ask a question about, what do I think about ABA or should I do floor time or... And people have very strong opinions about what they should be doing. And so I'm sure that the parents enjoy that sense of community. Have you seen that just with running your centers? Absolutely. Because we get families that come in at different stages. So we might have a family who's there and the child's already two and a half. So this is, you know, they've been doing this for a while now, like a year or so, and they can really be a nice resource and support to some of those newer families. So it's a really nice, just natural kind of like network of support, which is great. And then a lot of these families stay in touch once they leave the program, you know, they became, they could be um, create, you know, play groups and things like that for their children, which is very lovely as well. Oh, that's so nice. I love that. Yeah. Just having a way for for the kids to interact. I know with COVID and some of the families that I've been talking with, you know, they're asking me like, do you run any groups? And I'm like, I don't, I don't do that yet. I don't have time to do that, you know, because I do some other things online, um, like my courses and things like that. So I know that parents are always kind of looking for these ways to connect. And, um, you know, some of the parents that I uh, work with a, with a child with autism, they were asking me like, oh, you know, like, can I bring my child to story time? Can I, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, of course you can. You know, and I live in an area and I'm sure that you do too, where there's 
um, sensory friendly story times or sensory friendly plays or, you know, are there things like that? I know with COVID, it kind of changes things, but are there offerings like that in your area as well? They are. And I think, you know, while I like the natural environment for intervention, because it's a great way to like embed intervention into everyday occurring routines. I think one thing that we find a lot with families is they can easily feel very isolated. But I also think that as families who have been kind of isolated, and if their child has a high degree of problem behaviors, I find a lot of them don't want to access those services or those community resources, even if they are available, because, you know, maybe they tried it once and all the families looked at them and they were embarrassed or they felt like they had to explain themselves. So, I think what's nice in that it's not natural, but what is nice when a family can come to an early intervention site, you know, everybody gets their kid. They don't have to apologize for their child's behavior. You know, they just, it's just a nice, you just see them relax. You know, yes, just, I know. I feel I know. I feel like down the road some year I'd love to start some kind of support for parents who have autistic children because I feel like some parents do feel that way. Like, oh no, what if my child acts a certain way? Or, you know, what if my child does this? And it's not that they just feel that way. That's their feeling, you know, and I, I hate that parents feel that way. Um, but sometime down the road, I, we would love to offer that kind of support because the, having that sense of community, having other people to talk with about that, using professionals as a sounding board, I think has, has to be so powerful and important for parents. Because based on where you live, you may not have access to all these great services and you just may not have that type of support. And so then sometimes people turn to social media and then sometimes they get hostile reactions from people. And it doesn't all... It's not warm and fuzzy, right? Like you said, they relax. Sometimes Facebook groups can be anti-relaxing. So if somebody is listening and they're like, oh, this sounds... This behavioral skills training sounds really great. I'm an early intervention provider. I really want to help out. Could you just talk us through... like Maybe pick something like joint attention or something that you talk about with parents a lot and talk us through the different parts of behavioral skills training. So if somebody's thinking like, well, how can I actually incorporate this into my practice? What would that look like maybe with an early intervention skill? Can you just pick one skill that maybe you talk with parents a lot about? Sure. So maybe like joint attention. Is that something that you talk about with parents? Or you said communication temptations. I think some parents may not even... I think some people listening may not know know, what that means. Could you talk us through the different process, the different steps of behavioral skills training with something like communication temptations? Sure. So if we're thinking about communication temptations and we're thinking about communication, the first step, as I mentioned with BST, is to really provide that instruction. So I would want to define what a communication temptation is. And I might even step back a little bit and just so they're all on the same page and help parents to understand that to communicate, we need three things, right? We have to have a communicative partner, someone to communicate to. We have to have a reason to communicate and we have to have a way to communicate. So oftentimes we as parents get really good, especially when our children are not yet speaking at really anticipating our children's needs. But when we anticipate their needs, now we no longer have a reason to communicate. So what a communication temptation is, is it creates little obstacles so that the child would want to communicate. So for example, if we're having snack, instead of opening up their bag of goldfish and handing it to them, I might instead open up their bag of goldfish and maybe hand them three or four goldfish crackers. And now I've created a natural contingency where that child is likely going to somehow send a message to me. They might look at me, they might reach towards the goldfish, but somehow they're going to send me a message that they want that goldfish. 
So I would model that and demonstrate that to the parent. Maybe I would role play it. Um, it depends on the, um, um, the complexity of the child and, and the parents maybe ability to learn. But once we go through, we practice that, then I'm going to have the, I'm going to pass that bag of goldfish crackers now to the parent. So I've just modeled it with their child and I'm going to pass it along to the parent and I might coach them along. Oh, remember, just hand them three. And then I might tell that parent, okay, let's wait. Oh, what did you notice? Oh, he just looked at you. Great. So you can interpret that as communication. You can model goldfish and you can hand the child more goldfish. And then depending on how that parent did, I would provide them some feedback. That was awesome. What did you notice when you waited after you had the goldfish? That's right. He looked at you. That was perfect. Now let's think about what are some other things throughout the day that we might be able to give them just a little bit at a time. So maybe we talk about like at juice, we're going to do bit by bit, or maybe during bath time, instead of putting all their toys in, maybe we could give them one or two of their favorite toys in their bathtub. So that would be one example of maybe how you would go through that process. But not everybody during that practice stage is going to need that in the moment coaching. If you do need that uh, coaching in that that, uh, practice opportunity, then just like we fade our prompts for our children, We'd want to feed our props for our parent too and, and wait and give them that opportunity to um, be more independent with demonstrating that strategy because unfortunately, we're not going to be going home with our families. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to be there to prompt and cue them along. So we really want them to um, develop that skill with a degree of accuracy that we can have confidence and they can have confidence that they're going to be able to do it correctly at home. Because one thing I see sometimes is you know, people fall into this old pattern of like the parent waits in the waiting room. The last 10 minutes they come in, we debrief, maybe I model something. The parent nods. I think they've got it thumbs up, but I can tell they're not practicing. And then I start talking to the parent about it. And what they say is, yeah, but you know what? You know what you're doing. I don't want to mess them up. So that just kind of goes back to that family-centered conversation that we're having that we really want to empower those parents. And part of that empowerment is to build their confidence that what they're doing is correct. And they're not going to undo the things that you're doing as a clinician. They're only going to enhance what you're doing. Yeah, I love that so much. Thank you. That that really brings it to life. I think sometimes, you know, we're listening to those things. It's like, that sounds great, but how would I actually incorporate that into my practice? So I think that's super, super helpful. And if you're listening and you're like, well, I don't have access to parents, you know, I'm a school-based therapist. This is something too that I've done a lot of training about using behavioral skills training when I'm working with paraprofessionals. So in a school-based setting, we might be working really closely with paraprofessionals who might be spending more time with our student than I would be as the speech therapist. And so the same framework is is there. And so I think what's so important too, thinking that way as a school-based therapist, is I'm going to use this framework. I'm going to collaborate with the paraprofessional to help my student increase their skill set. And what's so cool is this ripple effect. I'm helping this one paraprofessional work on this skill with maybe this one student or a couple students. But if this paraprofessional works their entire career as a paraprofessional, they're going to work with so many different students. And so that you've really helped that student with autism build their competency, but you've also helped that paraprofessional build their competency as well. So that every autistic student that they work on who maybe they're working on communication temptations, like Nikki was saying, they have also learned this skill. So it's just such a great foundational training. And I do a lot of training. So I appreciate it. I was like, oh, this is a good topic. Let's get into it. Um, I love that. So I always end the podcast with kind of this final question. Um, What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about communication? It's always such a good question and, and everybody else, stump, everybody stumps when you ask it. And I'm a little stumped too, but I think, I don't know that it's a hundred percent about communication, but I think the thing that is 
important for parents to understand is that this journey oftentimes is a marathon and not a sprint. And to just recognize that each child's trajectory is their own trajectory. And as long as we're moving forward, then we're, we're doing great. But also a piece of that is to really make the time for self-care. You know, it again is a long journey and parents are forced to wear multiple hats. They're their child's first best friend. They're their child's advocate, their teacher, their speech pathologist, their occupational therapist, their behavior analyst, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, But it's so important just to take a little bit of time each day for yourself, because if your tank's empty, you're not going to be able to be there for your kiddo who needs you. I love that. That's such a great one. Um, Where can people find out more about you and your work, Nikki? We have a website, which is www.mccroypediatrics.com. We also have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, and a very undesirable Pinterest page. <laughs> I just haven't had the time to devote to it. But, but oh. if you want to follow us there, eventually it'll, it'll hopefully be something of value. <laughs> Yes, and a great inst- I love your Instagram. It's so great. Um, and Nikki put together this really great infographic all about behavioral skills training and these steps that we talked about today. So I will include that link in the show notes. And I think it's a really, really nice graphic to, to have if you want to implement this into your practice. Make sure to check the show notes for that resource. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.